welcome. Uh, this is the next in the setting of the anatomy of the upper limb. Uh, this is the anatomy of the arm. And um, we're just going to discuss the uh, flexor and extensor aspects uh, of the arm and uh, the elbow and superior radioulnar joint. I'd like to remind those um, if they're enjoying this series uh, and also our history of anatomy series that perhaps they might uh, wish to visit uh, uh, our uh, site https colon dash dash patron dot podbean dot com slash anatopod a m familiar a t o p o d anatopod all in capitals i'll include this site in our attachment uh, and if you'd like to contribute something so that we can upgrade our site get better equipment convert to an audio visual channel very much appreciated we're continuing on um, the the service continues to uh, be free and we're just relying on those who are enjoying it or using it to make a contribution if they feel they can very much appreciated and will be acknowledged and now enough of that let's talk about the anatomy of the arm and i think it's best to think of this area and the forearm as compartments and the development as i've said in the upper limb overview favors an approach towards an anterior and a posterior arm component with their respective nerves making comparisons and differences between the lower limb and the upper limb in development where the lower limb actually rotates through 180 degrees <clears throat> so in the upper limb the anterior compartment of the arm is supported by the anterior divisions of the brachial plexus primary rami. That's good, makes it easy. So the understanding of this arm structure is easier to appreciate if, by the way, we're keeping up the homology, the adductor, that adductor compartment of the arm, would then be made of the segmental structure of the coracobrachialis muscle. Uh, if we look at the lower limb, as I've said, this rotates 180 degrees, so all the back of the thigh and the leg are supported by the anterior primary rami of the lumbosacral plexus. And then the anterior part of the thigh is then supported by the posterior divisions of the primary lumbar plexus rami. That's why the femoral nerve is the posterior divisions. So you just want to reassess the homology between the upper and lower limbs. In the case of the nerve of the anterior arm, that is aptly named the musculocutaneous nerve. Now, we can examine the coracobrachialis muscle, its origin in the apex of the coracoid process. That's fused with the short head of biceps. The insertion of this muscle, which is effectively the homologue, as I've said, of the adductor compartment of the lower limb, is into the medial upper humerus, perhaps we might think of the upper quarter or so, and it's a bit variable and it depends on the bulk of the muscle. The lower extent of this insertion overlaps the nutrient foramen of the humerus, which is readily visible. You can have a look if you've got access to a humerus. And the fusion of the two of the muscle heads, that's coracobrachialis, then allows the musculocutaneous nerve to pierce the muscle which is readily evident in the dissected cadaver. 
And as I mentioned uh, before in another podcast, the lower head has usually regressed, but in some a supracondylar spur is located on the anteromedial aspect of the humerus and that merges with the so-called ligament of Struthers, which attaches to the medial epicondyle as the vestigial remnant of this caracobrachialis muscle inferiorly. And this compression of the median nerve would actually lead to impaired sensation over the palm, which is not a feature of conventional carpal tunnel median nerve compression. So there might be also some weakness of elbow flexion if there was nerve compression under a ligament of struthers. The musculocutaneous nerve, which is the nerve of the anterior arm compartment, is C5-6, and that's also the movement of flexion, and that innervates the caracobrachialis muscle and the biceps muscle and the brachialis muscle. The caracobrachialis is really a weak arm adductor, but uh, I think also that you can think of it as a sort of um, landmark muscle in much the same way that when you look at the lower limb, as we'll discuss uh, later this year, the piriformis is a landmark muscle through which the, or under which the sciatic nerve passes. Um, we move on in the anterior aspect of the arm, of course, to having some knowledge about the other muscles of this region, the biceps. That should be discussed now. The long head of the muscle comes from the supraglenoid tubercle. You can check that area out on a scapula if you've got access to one, as well as coming from the origin of the adjoining glenoidal labrum. And the long tendon runs intrasynovially, it's wrapped by a synovial membrane, under the transverse humeral ligament. There may even be a little kind of mesotenon there which can regress. The short head arises, as I've already stated, with the caracobrachialis, and these two tendons fuse variably into a kind of fleshy belly of muscle, that's the biceps, and which can be manually separated in most people as far as the elbow. And that then flattens out as a tendon that rotates a little laterally, a bit outwards, as a kind of rolled tendon, and which passes to the posterior border of the tuberosity of the radius, where there may be a small, sometimes separating bursa, and which gives rise also to the fibrous, I call it rather scimitar effect medially, of the bicipital aponeurosis that goes then and fuses with the deep fascia of the forearm, and which is ultimately inserted somewhat indirectly into the subcutaneous palpable border of the upper quarter of the ulna. Now that effect is there really to straighten up the fascia during flexion of the elbow, a bit like the halyard of a mainsail in a ship. The upper margin of this aponeurosis, that is the bicipital aponeurosis, is crescentic, and that's readily palpable. You can feel it in your flexed arm, uh, in the flexed elbow. And that structure of the muscle results in a very complex action, the muscle acting at three discrete points, the shoulder, the elbow, and the proximal radioalna joint. And clearly, as the muscle runs across the elbow joint, it's a powerful arm flexor, but we have many of these. If the arm is extended to any point outside of full flexion, the biceps functions as a powerful supinator, and that's limited by a triceps coaction. 
If the forearm is fully supinated, the bicipital aponeurosis is fully taut and the muscle pulls on both bones, resulting in some elbow flexion. Uh, Ray Last has suggested that this also is associated with some shoulder flexion and that the action is like putting in a corkscrew and then pulling out at the cork. But I, I must confess, I find that a little bit hard to understand. What is easier to understand is how the long head stabilises the shoulder joint. Pulling this muscle across reveals the brachialis if we're doing a cadaveric dissection. And that muscle arises from the lower three quarters of the front of the humerus and also from a fair bit of the medial intermuscular septum. The upper part of the muscle, the brachialis, surrounds the deltoid insertion, so it fills in that space or gap as high as the radial groove. If you have a look at a humerus, you'll see that. And the muscle runs into a stout tendon, which inserts into the coronoid process of the ulna, as well as a bit of its tuberosity. Now there's some insertion in front of the elbow capsule and that allows the capsule not to be nipped into the joint as it's flexed, so it's a rather clever little attachment. The muscle is largely innervated by the musculocutaneous nerve, but a little bit of it near the radial groove can pick up a local nerve supply. And as last states correctly here, this reflects the embryological development of the movement of the muscle from the extensor or posterior compartment in the fetal limb into the flexor compartment. So again we'll see the differences between the fetal upper limb and lower limb development. We should expand a little bit here I think on the dual nerve supply of these muscles because that actually has a particular embryology. I've said before that if you know a little bit of embryology, relevant embryology, you know quite a lot of anatomy. It doesn't unfortunately work the other way around. But let's just iterate at this point a little embryology. In some cases, muscles that are near the preaxial and postaxial borders of a limb can actually receive this kind of dual nerve supply. And as in this circumstance, the flexor muscle receives a nerve supply additionally from the extensor compartment. The equivalent of this in the upper limb, uh, in the uh, lower limb, pardon me, is the short head of biceps femoris, which can be supplied or which is supplied by the perineal division of the sciatic nerve, as the lower limb homologue, where the flexor muscle is innervated by an extensor compartment nerve. Now, it's relevant to appreciate that the lateral and the medial intermuscular septa in the adult are also not really representative of the fetal limb septum. In the fetal limb, the ulnar nerve lies in the flexor compartment, whereas the brachioradialis and the lateral part of brachialis, as I've said, lie in the extensor compartment uh, along with the radial nerve. And in the adult, Above the elbow, the ulnar nerve lies in the extensor compartment, whereas the brachioradialis, the lateral brachialis, and even a bit of the radial nerve, actually in the adult, lie in the flexor compartment. So we can see that there's some separation or migration, if you like, in the fetal development of the upper limb to the adult uh, upper limb status. Now, to imagine this, one has to think, I think, also of the cross-section of a fetal arm 
and you then see that the fetal septum of the fetal arm lies at an angle to the horizontal, running really from the upper outer arm to the inner lower arm at about 30 degrees from the horizontal plane. So I think that's all that the embryology one needs to know on that, but it's useful embryology. To come back to brachialis, it's a principal elbow joint flexor, but it also acts during extension, as Lars says, in putting down a glass of water, or as he nicely describes it, sort of paying out rope in elbow extension. The vantage point of the lateral and medial intermuscular septum allows an appreciation of the course of the nerves as they traverse adult compartments. The medial septum originates some medial brachialis fibres, as we've said, and a part of the medial head of the triceps, and it is pierced by the ulnar nerve and by the ulnar collateral artery. The lateral septum, fading out under the deltoid insertion, gives origin to the brachioradialis and also below that to the extensor carpi radialis longus, as well as a bit of the medial head of triceps, and it's pierced by the radial nerve and part of the descending anterior branch of the profunda brachii artery accompanying. The relevance of this dissection, that is of the anterior uh, arm compartment, is the neurovascular arrangement. The neurovascular bundle, we recall if we go back to the anatomy of the axilla, has passed out of the axilla into this compartment with the axillary nerve and the posterior circumflex humeral vessels already having passed into the extensor compartment via the quadrangular space. So we're below that now. The radial nerve passes via the triangular space medially. The surgical approach here, that's in the upper arm, is of course dominated by the medial neurovascular arrangement. The relationship of the median nerve and the brachial artery mean that a stab wound, for example, here, where there is already arterial bleeding, would mean that the median nerve is pretty much likely to be injured. That's the point of knowing that the median nerve is run from lateral to medial over the top of the artery usually. So if the artery is bleeding in a stab wound to the cubital fossa or above that, the likelihood is they've got a median nerve injury as well. The usual surgical approach, so for example to expose a mid-shaft fracture of the humerus if that needs to be done, is anterolateral to avoid such an injury. But there are medial approaches that have been described with neurovascular retraction, but they need quite a bit of brachialis separation to get to the bone. Now, if we're continuing with this compartment, we want to talk then next about the brachial artery. And this is important because sometimes you might need to expose the brachial artery for an embolectomy or if there's been an injury, a stab wound, as I've said, to this region. We'll come into the idea of embolectomy, actually, and the cubital fossa anatomy in the next podcast. The brachial artery, as we recall, of course, commences by definition as the continuation of the axillary artery from the lower border of the teres major muscle with the axillary vein inframedially developed from below by the venae comitantes and reinforced by the medially placed basilic vein. And this is all perforating the deep fascia at about the attachment point of the deltoid muscle, the deltoid tuberosity. 
The median nerve runs over it, as I've said, from lateral to medial, making the artery relatively superficial as it passes into the cubital fossa. And with a variable height, or place if you like, of bifurcation into the radial and ulnar artery. We'll come into that in the next podcast. If you're operating on the artery and there's no pulsation, for example, with an embolus, you can run an incision below the bicipital groove towards the middle of the cubital fossa. But I make a rather lazy S incision right across the cubital fossa so that you can expose the radial and ulnar branches directly there. And if you do that, you can run an embolectomy catheter down each one under vision. So there are many ways to do this. This is now obviously done uh, uh, radiologically and not operatively, but if you have to operate on uh, on an arm embolus, that's the way, that's a good way of doing it. The upper artery, um, that's the brachial artery, is seen at the medial border of the biceps. The artery typically also here in the arm has the profunda brachii running along with the radial nerve through the lower triangular space and which forms a superior an inferior collateral branch about a centimetre above the beginning of the medial supracondylar ridge. And typically, the superior ulnar collateral artery, which accompanies the ulnar nerve as it perforates the medial intermuscular septum, is separate from an inferior ulnar collateral, which typically uh, also both of these have anterior and posterior branches to form a very complex elbow anastomotic network. So there's both superior and inferior anterior and posterior branches on the medial side. There's also, as we know, a nutrient branch from the brachial artery to the humerus, and there are often unnamed muscular branches. The elbow anastomotic network is very rich, and as I've said, can be thought of as ulnar and radial. There are further branches that come from the common interosseous, typically with a kind of heavier ulnar representation of anastomosis. There is, as we know, a radial collateral artery, as well as often a middle collateral artery, which might be part of a recurrent interosseous, although there can be considerable variation here. The radial recurrent gives rise on the radial side to a radial collateral artery. And I think there's some people think of a mnemonic, I am pretty smart, with I as the inferior ulnar collateral, its anterior branch, the posterior ulnar collateral branch of a superior ulnar, uh, of a superior ulnar collateral. So there are some ways of thinking of it. We'll add on little discussion as we go in the next podcast into the radial and ulnar and interosseous arteries. The veins, of course, include the basilic and the cephalic, and I make the point again that the tributaries of the veins, which represent the branches of the thoracoacromial artery, clavicular, pectoral, auxiliary and deltoid, all drain into the cephalic vein rather than into the auxiliary vein. And that arrangement is homologous to the design of the tributaries of the superficial femoral artery in the lower limb, joining the long or great saphenous vein rather than the femoral vein. So those um, equivalent tributaries are, of course, the superficial epigastric vein, the superficial circumflex iliac vein, the superficial and often deep external pudendal veins. They'll drain in to the long or great saphenous vein rather than draining into the femoral vein, exactly as in the upper limb, the tributaries 
which relate to the thoracochromial artery, will drain into the cephalic vein and not into the axillary vein, usually. The median nerve, of course, in the upper limb has no branches uh, in the arm. A high branch can come off um, to the pronator teres on occasion, and there is an articular twig to the elbow as well as some sympathetic innervation of the brachial artery. The musculocutaneous nerve, of course, is the nerve of the anterior compartment of the arm, and it innervates the three muscles we've mentioned, the coracobrachialis, the biceps, and the brachialis. And it does innervate the shoulder joint. It runs between the biceps and the brachialis muscles. And it continues, as we know, with the anterior and posterior branches as the lateral cutaneous nerve of the forearm, pretty big cutaneous nerve, which runs down to the level of the ball of the thumb. The other structures in the arm there are the ulnar nerve that runs posteriorly, as we've said, piercing the medial intermuscular septum and running with a superior ulnar collateral artery and a little branch of the radial nerve that will often go to the medial head of triceps, the so-called ulnar collateral nerve. And the nerve as it runs down on the medial trochlea, that is the ulnar nerve against the bone, gives a branch directly into the elbow joint, and that can readily be seen on dissection and in an ulnar nerve transposition procedure. It's a stout branch that holds the ulnar nerve to the elbow joint. We've also got in this region the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm. We often don't see that in dissection. A larger nerve, more anteriorly disposed, which we can find, is the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm, and the final other nerve that we might have in this region, the upper floor of the axilla, in our dissection we've already seen before, is the intercostobrachial nerve. We've discussed that already. It's a modified lateral cutaneous branch of the second intercostal nerve. Now, I'll remind in the arm of the dissection of the supratrochlear nodes, which can also occasionally be enlarged. You see that particularly in rheumatoid arthritis and sometimes in lymphoma. And these lie above the medial epicondyle, draining the medial forearm and hand and draining alongside the basilic vein. Now, in the posterior compartment of the arm, that is relatively simple and is dominated by the triceps muscle structure. The radial nerve runs um, <coughs> through this compartment, as does the ulnar nerve lower down. And the triceps is pretty poorly named. It's a three-headed muscle that has long lateral and medial heads, and the latter two run deeply, and they take their origin above and below the spiral groove of the humerus. But rather, they'd be better labelled as lateral, medial, and deep heads. And understanding this completes an understanding of their origin and hence their function. So let's go through it. Um, the long head is actually medial and is the one that arises from the infraglenoid tubercle and that forms the inner boundary to the spaces we've already seen, the quadrangular and triangular. The lateral head is lateral, and it arises from the bone of the humerus down to the deltoid tuberosity, coming from the level of the surgical neck. The long and lateral heads 
combined to form a flattish tendon which is inserted into the olecranon. The medial head arises from the bone below, near the radial groove, and also from both intermuscular septa, lateral and medial. And that's also partly inserted into the posterior capsule, so that that's not nipped inwards on elbow extension. The arrangement here is similar, really, to the quadriceps and the so-called articularis genu muscle. Now, the nerve supply here... um, is high on the main radial nerve with two discrete branches to the medial head, usually in order long, medial and lateral, and then another one to the medial. Some people think of a can think of a little um, um, mnemonic here, lome lame, just giving off these branches. And the branch take off before the uh, the branches actually take off really before the nerve is in contact with the bone. And because they take off high, a radial nerve injury with a fracture of the shaft of the humerus tends not to be associated with the denervated triceps. That is, elbow extension as opposed to wrist extension um, is uh, not affected. So the elbow can extend, it might be a bit weak, but the wrist can't. Now, of course, the muscle extends the elbow, but the long head is also a shoulder stabiliser as we've seen in an earlier podcast. Now, the dominant structures here are the radial nerve and the profunda brachii vessels. We're talking about the posterior compartment of the arm. The radial nerve, we remember, leaves the axilla as the continuation of the large, or really the largest, posterior cord of the brachial plexus, and it runs down the spiral groove from medial to lateral. And as it runs down, it actually is protected from the bone by part of the medial head of the triceps. It nears laterally the uppermost fibres of the origin of brachialis, and it's at that point that it pierces the lateral intermuscular septum, reaching the upper lateral cubital fossa under the brachioradialis muscle. Now, make comparison here, I think, with the popliteal fossa and the common fibular or perineal, common perineal nerve. The nerve above... Its spiral groove, this is back on the arm, is already given off, as I've said, importantly, the posterior cutaneous nerve of the arm. So you can test that um, in people who've got a radial nerve injury from a, uh, a fractured humerus, and you'll still have some sensation of the posterior aspects of the upper arm and mid-arm. The lower branches, which go down to the lateral and medial head of triceps, are then given off with the latter also innervating the small ancaneus muscle. And at this level is a posterior cutaneous nerve of the forearm and a lower lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm, and they can also be broadly tested. So if you've got poor areas of sensation there, then it's in that region between where the posterior cutaneous nerve of the arm has been given off and these lower branches, the posterior cutaneous nerve, and lateral cutaneous nerve, lower lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm, the posterior cutaneous nerve of the forearm. The nerve can be approached, of course, directly against a line drawn down from the acromion to the lateral epicondyle between the upper third and the lower two-thirds, if you like, of meeting such a line. There's a re- recent article um, by uh, Kip Sawyer 
from Boston on the variability of the branching pattern of the radial nerve, and most of the variations of this nerve tend to occur below the elbow. There's also a nice recent Turkish article by Temiz, uh, where we know the exposure can be made between the extensor carpi radialis longus and the brachioradialis in a distal exposure, what some have called the Fröse, F-R-O-H-E, O-H-S-E, arc. And that approach allows you to look at the superficial and deep branches of the radial nerve in compression syndromes or occasionally an injury. That approach allows the exposure um, to, as I've said, the superficial running under the brachioradialis and the deep branch before it hits into the supinator. Higher up, there's a linear incision is normally made fairly posterolaterally with some muscle separation required, but it's got a very good exposure. Now, the profunda brachii artery runs along with the nerve. Typically, it divides into anterior and posterior branches in their formation, as I've said before, of a cubital anastomosis. And I'll return to that later, uh, perhaps in the, um, in the uh, next podcast. In the lower part of this compartment is, as I've said, the ulnar nerve, which is piercing the medial intermuscular <coughs> septum, running between the two heads, the humeral and the ulnar heads of the origin of the flexor carpial naris muscle. Now remember, all these sort of structures pass through heads. The ulnar nerve, as I've described, the median nerve passes between the two heads of the pronator teres muscle and the radial nerve between the two heads of the supinator muscle. So we think of them in that particular way. And here the ulnar nerve is, of course, behind the medial epicondyle, but it's tethered to it, as I've already said, by a rather stout, short, direct articular twig to the elbow joint that's usually very evident on cadaveric dissection. So we've covered the anterior compartment and the posterior compartment of the arm. We've got to talk about the elbow and radio-ulnar joints. The elbow joint is a hinge joint, but um, it is... Um, made complex because of its articulation with both the radius and ulna at the lower end of the humerus. The communication is with the proximal radio-ulna joint, unlike distally, where the wrist is, of course, separate from the distal radio-ulna joint. The special distal areas of the capitulum and the trochlea have already been described in the previous podcast when we spoke about the osteology of the humerus. The rounded capitulum accommodates the head of the radius, with the trochlea lying more medially, extending completely around the lower end of the humerus for articulation with the medial area, and it's raised as a sort of sharp ridge, much more so on this side than on the capitular side or capitulum side. So effectively, where we spoke about a carrying angle, this contributes to that kind of tilt. Because of the nature of this joint in both flexion and extension, there are obviously accommodating fossae above the capitulum and trochlea that receive the head of the radius and the projecting coronoid process of the ulna, respectively, when the elbow is in full flexion. And, of course, a deep olecranon fossa posteriorly that takes the ulna in full extension. So just have a look at a humerus and remind yourself of these points, the radial uh, fossa, the olecranon fossa, and so forth, the coronoid fossa, of course. 
The basic mechanism and the basic mechanics are then relatively simple. The upper part of the articulating radius is a little cylindrical head which has a gentle spherical concavity on its upper surface. You can check that out. Designed rather beautifully to fit the roundness of the opposing capitulum. The trochlea is a little reminiscent of a pulley's wheel, and actually it means a pulley in Latin. Capitellum just means, uh, uh, in the context, really a small head, and a lecheron is a fusion of the Latin olein for elbow and cranion, which is head. So there's nothing specific to read into that. The corresponding area on the ulna is, of course, the deep trochlear notch, which, if you look at an ulna, has two separate articular surfaces separated by a central but rather eccentric raised ridge here for accommodation of the electron and the coronoid process. So if you've got access to an ulna, just check this little point out. There's a ridge here as a sort of soft columnar bone running between the coronoid process and the electron leading to a soft, sloping, medial segment and a steeper, lateral segment for articulation. Now, as we know, in any joint, after we've discussed the articular surfaces, we talk about its capsule, which has the bony attachments which I've described, but which is carried above all of these fossae which we've mentioned and creates a sort of large, soft, fat pad cushions around the front and the back of the joint, and which also attaches in a rather unique way to a transverse ligament running around the head of the radius, which doesn't attach to the so-called annular ligament, which is quite a unique ligament, well-named as the annular ligament of the proximal radial ulnar joint. Now, the beauty of that annular ligament is the ability of the radius to pronate and supinate freely underneath this ligament without any bony attachment. But the capsule of the elbow joint attaches laterally to that annular ligament. And it explains, of course, why the elbow and the proximal radio-ulnar joint uh, is one complex. The capsule is lined, as we know, with synovium, with a small ligament which is called the quadrate ligament inferiorly. And that prevents herniation of the synovial membrane between the free anterior and posterior parts of the annular ligament. And I'll return to that small point a little later. Um, the creation of the three joints here, which is effectively a humeroulnar, a humeroradial and a radioulnar joint, allows the flexion extension function, certainly at the humeroulnar and humeroradial joints, and the pronation and supination function at the proximal and distal radioulnar joints. The humeroulnar joint is a hinge, what's called a ginglimus, G-I-N-G-L-Y-M-U-S, which just means a hinge, like the elbow or the knee, allowing only movement in one plane. Uh, a kind of spheroid or hinge pivot joint is another way of thinking of it, whereas the humeroradial joint is a ball and socket joint. And the proximal or upper radioulnar joint is a trochoid, so-called, or pivot cone-shaped joint, where the circumference of the head of the radius articulates with the radial notch of the ulna. So, in this sense, they are more complex in their geometric design. 
I will go through the osteology of both the radius and the ulna in the next two podcasts. We're going to split the forearm into the flexor and extensor compartments, so there'll be some overlap regarding the discussion of the forearm bones. These three joints, in the way I've described them, all lie within a relatively lax capsule, which is supported by muscular fibres from the brachialis, triceps and anconeus. Both epicondyles, the medial more developed than the lateral, are of course extracapsular. Instability, although these are passive and dynamic effects, bone stability is provided by the pulley-shaped bone of the humeroalna joint, mainly by the coronoid process, and the radial head can therefore be thought of as acting somewhat as a secondary support. Now, the capsule of the elbow is reinforced by strong lateral ligaments. The medial collateral ligament, so-called ulnar collateral ligament, is the most important, I think, and that is a complex triangular structure. It has a strong anterior band which extends from the humerus to a small ridge or tubercle, some call that the sublime tubercle, on the medial part or ridge of the coronoid process. There's a posterior band from this medial collateral ligament which joins this area with the medial olecranon, a kind of a hammock-shaped middle band which houses, if you will, the ulnar nerve. The anterior part of this ligament runs from the medial epicondyle towards the annular ligament that we've already described, the middle part towards the coronoid process and the posterior part to the olecranon. So it's just going progressively backwards with each of these three parts being reinforced by an oblique band, which some are called the so-called ligament of Cooper, which runs a little bit more distally onto the ulna. You can look for evidence of that in the cadaveric dissection. By contrast, the radial collateral ligament is more of an isolated kind of flat band that fuses with that annular ligament on the radial side, and which itself is attached around but not to the radial head, and therefore it attaches to the front and back margins of the radial notch of the ulna. Quite a unique little ligament and a unique joint. You can check out an ulna here, please, in order to confirm that. So in effect, the lateral or radial collateral ligament connects the lateral epicondyle to the annular ligament, anteriorly, if you will, by this radial collateral ligament, and posteriorly, via a lateral ulna collateral ligament which inserts into the supinator crest of the ulna. It's a little bit more complex, therefore. And this consideration makes this structure more kind of interwoven with the superficial extensor fora musculature. The other ligaments of the area are a kind of a radial annular ligament, which I've already mentioned, but we should think of it as a U-shaped fibrous collar which is sort of covered on its inner side with cartilage. There is the quadrate ligament, which I've briefly mentioned, and that attaches the radial neck to the distal aspect of the radial notch on the ulna. And then there's an oblique cord, which runs infralaterally from the lateral border of the tuberosity of the ulna down to the radius, and that prevents the downward movement of the radius as you're banging your arm on a table or something like that, um, and then there's, below that, the interosseous membrane, 
as we've said above with its oblique cord, which joins the two forearm bones in such a way as to prevent movement acting in some ways like a sort of fulcrum in the pro in pronation and supination. And I'll come to that a little more just in a moment. Now, the biomechanics of this is such that the distal extremity of the humerus, when we're talking about the elbow joint, is like a sort of fork where the axis of articulation runs through the capitulum and the trochlea. Flexion and extension are limited by the soft tissues of the arm and, of course, by the bony limits of the olecranon. Supination and pronation occur because of the coaxial nature of the proximal and distal radioulnar joints. And there's some movement between the head of the radius and the capitulum and the sort of capitulotrochlear sulcus. That kind of movement takes place around the longitudinal aspect of the forearm, which runs from the heads of the radius to the styloid, well, the head of the radius, to the styloid process of the ulna. In full supination, the two bones of the forearm lie pretty well parallel, and the limiting factor is purely ligamentous, that is, largely the interosseous membrane, and to some extent the oblique cord, and maybe the anterior ligament of the distal radioulnar joint. During pronation, the radius crosses over the ulna, which is really only possible because of the direction of the fibres on the interosseous membrane. And that's limited by that membrane, as well as to some extent by the flexor musculature. Now, we need to add, I think, a couple of other things. We haven't mentioned the ancaneus, which you'll see on dissection not particularly important muscle that originates on the dorsal aspect of the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. You can look for a little site there and also the lateral collateral ligament and it runs really towards the posterior proximal ulna with a posterior capsular attachment. And if you look at it, it is in effect a small continuation really inferiorly of the lateral head of triceps. And it aids the triceps with a kind of similar innovation from the radial nerve in the branch that goes to the medial triceps head. There's a nice little article actually on the Ancaneus for those interested by Francois Molinier from Toulouse in France, which was uh, in Surgical Radiologic Anatomy in 2011. Nothing's remarkably new in anatomy. Um, in this anatomic study, that's perhaps a bit harsh, in this anatomic study, anyway, the two muscles lie in the same compartment with a common neural origin. There is, however, a clear cleavage plane between ancaneus and the deeper part of extensor carpial marus, which allows the ancaneus to adhere to the posterior capsule of the elbow joint. In the way I've described, bony stability of the elbow, the ancaneus probably assists in preventing posterolateral elbow distraction, perhaps in leading also to a small amount of ulnar abduction during pronation, but more locking the humeroulnar joint uh, in, in extension, supination, so lateral stabilising muscle of the elbow by its position. Now the nerve supply to the elbow comes from everything that's around. That's the next bit that we talk about when we talk about joints. So the musculocutaneous, the median, ulnar and radial, radial in accordance with Hilton's law, which we've mentioned in a previous podcast. The vascular anastomosis around the elbow joint includes the recurrent branches arising from the radial 
and ulna and often the common interosseous artery which forms the plexus radially and on the ulna or so-called leeward side and there are specific descending articular branches of the profunda brachii and both the superior and inferior ulna collateral artery. We've got to talk a little bit more just now about the proximal radio-ulna joint because that's part of the elbow joint. It's principally constructed, as I've said, by the annular ligament, which allows the radial head free rotation inside and which superiorly blends with the capsule of the elbow joint, particularly on the radial side, as we've already said, forming one continuous synovial cavity. So I think we've got that anatomy in our heads. Below this is a defined quadratic ligament between the radius and ulna, between the upper neck of the radius and the tuberosity, to the upper part of the supinator fossa on the ulna and to the most distal part of the radial notch. It's a principal area which holds the two bones in apposition. Below that's then the interosseous membrane which joins the interosseous parts of both forearm bones which as I've said will be discussed in the next forearm podcasts in their osteology. At the moment it's useful to know that the fibres of the interosseous membrane run downwards from the radius to the ulna, so that it's a kind of shock absorber in the transmission of force. The membrane is tightened in pronation and more lax in supination. And of course, as we know, has an oblique cord above which runs in the opposite direction, perhaps representing a vestigial remnant of the flexipolysis longus or an additional part of the supinator muscle. There are a number of theories there. Now, the interosseous membrane is thin and membranous in the proximal and the distal thirds, but it's very quite, it's really quite thick and ligamentous in its middle third, and that would make a lot of sense. The forearm rotates around a longitudinal axis which passes as a straight line through the radial head at the elbow and the fovea of the distal ulna at the wrist. The head of the radius, as I've already said, is held in place by the strong annular ligament with a radial collateral ligament as a stabiliser and with the lateral ulnar collateral ligament preventing posterolateral instability. If that ligament's damaged or lost, the proximal radio-ulnar joint tends to remain intact even if the radial head subluxes from the capitulum. The cord, as we've said, runs from the radial tuberosity just distal to that quadrate ligament so defined Towards the ulnar tuberosity, the gap that's created between the oblique cord and the interosseous membrane is the passage point of, often in people, rather small posterior interosseous vessels. The interosseous membrane is actually a pretty complex structure with described accessory bands where the widest interosseous distance occurs at the junction of the middle and distal thirds of the forearm. Uh, that is the point where the radius uh, at least the curvature of the radius, is greatest with respect to the ulna, and where effectively the bones, as I've said, already lie in a parallel alignment. Um, I think the only other thing one could say about that one to call attention to before finishing is the anatomy of the so-called pooled, or what people call the nursemaid's elbow in children. And we can understand that if we appreciate the anatomy, that's a radial head subluxation that happens when a child is typically pulled along by one arm. So you're kind of lifting a child up and you're pulling the arm out and that pulls the radial head, rather poorly formed radial head, 
out from under the annular ligament. It's really an axial traction on an extended arm where the forearm is usually pronated and then the radial head slips out from under that annular ligament. And it's typical in a child between the ages of about one to four. It has actually a little predominance in girls. Now, the head is replaced just really pushing it back into position in the flexed arm and you just push the elbow in, if you like, pronating and supinating as you go, actually more commonly with hyperpronation. And I think it's an interesting thing is that the bottom of that annular ligament is a little funnel-shaped and it's a little narrower, so that if that is neglected, because it's difficult to diagnose uh, radiologically, there can occasionally be quite a difficulty in reducing that subluxation by closed means because the lower end of that annular ligament is like a little waist. And if it gets past that, it's then very difficult to actually uh, uh, enlocate it um, by uh, just a, a conservative means or in a closed manner. Okay, so I just wanted to bring that up because it's got an anatomical basis to how it's treated. So that's today's podcast. We'll pick up on the cubital fossa and the flexor aspect uh, in the next one and discuss, I think, the osteology of the radius. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.